Happy Friday, everyone. Happy Friday. This is Harriet Westmore with the More Wine and Music podcast, the podcast where I talk about history of music over a glass of wine. But tonight I'm not drinking wine. I'm actually wanted had a taste for some sang, um, not sangria, but some margaritas. So I'm drinking some uh, good old classic margarita. Okay, so today is my final season finale of episode number 12 for the blues genre. And I wanted to um, kick it off with a different twist and talking about um, uh, the different uh, style of blues. So before I get into that, I wanted to remind everybody to check out www.morewineandmusic.com where there's um, there's t-shirts, there's back, I'm not backpacks, but tote bags, there's coffee mugs, um, with the more wine and music podcast, uh, logo. So definitely check that out. And, um, if you have any, um, questions or comments, you can also leave your, um, comments on the www.morewineandmusic.com website. All right. So this is the last episode for the the blues genre. This is episode 12. And I decided to um, talk about a different style of blues. Um, I wanted to go, I've been in the Delta for the last several weeks. So I wanted to come up North a little bit. Um, not too far north, but up in um, the Missouri area. So um, we're going to be talking about Big Joe Turner. He was uh, another artist um, that uh, he was a show. Actually, he was a showman because his style of blues was more um, of the musical in the Broadway so he was able to infuse the sound of blues into the mainstream of American music. So I thought that would be a nice um, ending. Um, you know, for the last several weeks, I've been talking about early artists that came from the Delta or from, you know, somewhere down south. And so I wanted to kind of change it up a little bit. All right. Um, Joseph. Vern, who was known as Big Joe Turner Jr., was born on May 18th in 1911 in Kansas City, Missouri. KCMO, not KCMS. I mean, I'm sorry, KCKS, but KCMO. I actually happened to been to Kansas City, Missouri um, for a brief time, and it was interesting. I didn't stay long, but I, I've been to Kansas City, Missouri. Um, but anyway, he was born there. Um, I couldn't find any information about his mother, 
but his dad, um, Joseph Vernon Turner Sr., was unfortunately killed by a train accident when um, Joe was um, four years old. So he really didn't have much, um, act, you know, he didn't really know his um, his his dad. Again, I, I don't know about his mom. So, um, but while young and because of his size, everybody called him Big Joe. Okay, so from here on out, I'm known, he's known as Big Joe. Um, Big Joe stayed in the church and on street corners in um, Mrs. Um, in Kansas City for money. And he did that to help support his family. So he I guess he was a, a sibling of two. There was his, you know, himself. And he had a sister and his mom. So his mom was a single mom, single parent, raising her two children. And um, Big Joe um, was you know, young and had to help support the family. By the age of 14, he got a job at um, one of the Kansas City nightlife uh, nightclubs. And (laughs) which is interesting, he was a bartender at at the age of 14. So uh, (laughs) how did he pull that off? I don't know. But he was a uh, bartender. And um Afterwards, I guess because while well, he would mix the drinks for the patrons, he would um be singing. So he was known as the uh singing barman. So he must have had a voice. Um they dubbed him as singing barman, and you know, at age 14, he was he was mixing drinks and you know, serving you know the patrons in the club. Um he worked in venues uh, such as Kingfish Club and the Sunset. Um, there was there he created a partnership with um, a guy named Pete Johnson who played the piano. So between the two of them, you know, they um, had their own little gig going. He sung and Pete played the piano. Um, and they became regular performers in, in these type of establishments. Um, the club sunset that where he worked was uh, matched by a guy named Piney Brown. Um, the club was considered separate but equal. Again, you got to realize this was during the Jim Crow eras, era. So they did have facilities that were um, part of the facilities was for whites and the other part was for blacks. So it was a separate but equal um, establishment. And I guess from that experience, um, Big Joe wrote a song, um, called, um, Piney Brown Blues. So that was something later on that he did. So he, you know, as to not forget of his early beginnings. And it was also known during that time while he worked in those establishments that, um, those bars would be um, raided by the police. I, I don't know. Um, I would think, well, right off the bat, I would think because they serve people or let allow, you know, underage um, kids work there. Um, so, I mean, that might be one reason. But anyway, um, Kansas City police um, would be raiding a lot of those establishments. But it was so common to where the bosses, 
where Joe um, worked, I mean, he attested this that say that um, the boss will have um, the bondsmen already waiting downtown by the time the employees who've been arrested at the bar, by the time they get there, the bondsmen were already there waiting to bail them out. So, you know, usually what the employees would do after after the police were raid the place, they all they'll take them all downtown and all the employees would have to do is just sign their name and go right back. <laughs> and the next day it'll be business as usual. So hey, I, I guess if you had that type of arrangement, I guess it worked. But um after a while, um Big Joe and his partner Pete Johnson, you know, they wanted to kind of go out of their comfort zone, leave Kansas City. So they decided to um, try to make their mark in um, New York City. So they left Kansas City in 1936. And there they were billed to perform with um, the famous Benny Goodwin, Goodman. And you would think um, performing on the same stage as Benny Goodman, that that will open up the doors for them to perform in other um, venues. But New York City is a big difference between Kansas City. It's not Kansas City. You know, New York is a different um, animal. So um, they had to really audition to perform on, you know, in different venues. And they weren't as successful in getting a lot of gigs. So you know, after a while, they became disillusioned and um, returned back to Kansas City, came back to where they came from. Um, so they went back home to Kansas City and started playing in venues around in Kansas City. But as everybody knows, Kansas City, St. Louis, those areas, they were the start. They weren't, you know, it wasn't too shabby. It's not playing in like, you know, the jute joints or anything like that. They, you know, Kansas City, St. Louis, those areas were the popular um, stomping grounds for a lot of uh, famous um, artists. That's where they, a lot of them got their start, especially in the jazz, um, which I'll be, that'll be my next season. I'll be talking about the jazz. So that'll be a, um, so they weren't in a bad um, spot. They were in a bad place to really, um grow in, in their in their music and performance. And it was there while they were back home in, in Kansas City that they were discovered by a scout named um, John Hammond. John Hammond um, saw them and liked what, what he heard, how they performed. So he invited them to come back to New York and to perform. And in 1938, that's what they did. They came back to perform and they performed in his um, concerts it was, that was called, he had a a, a musical called um, From Spirituals to Swing, which they performed at Carnegie Hall. So again, they were able to perform in places that a lot of blues, early blues artists were able to um, have that. Um, opportunity. So um, this was the introduction 
of you know playing at Carnegie Hall, obviously that was the introduction to um, cross over, so to speak, into a uh, wider spread audience. Because if you can perform at Carnegie Hall and places like that, then you considered you have um, arrived and you are, you know, you're pretty much, you know, in the upper, upper, upper echelon of uh, performing other than playing in um, on the streets or playing in, you know, Jew joints as the, you know, earlier artists have. So um, in 1939, Big Joe and Johnson um, teamed up with another um, pianist um, named Albert Ammons and Mead Lukes Lewis. Um, they all began to, they got together, they played at the Cafe Society, which is a uh, another nightclub in New York City. And they were also um, performed on the same bill as um, Billie Holiday and Frankie Newton's band. In 1941, Big Joe left New York and went to Los Angeles to play with Duke Ellington. Um, review um, was called Jump for Joy in Hollywood. He also did a um, comedy skit and portrayed himself as a policeman in in he and it was called he's on the beat and while there in LA he decided to stay there for a while and make his home so in 1944 he began to this is when he began to get more recognized in um in LA and this is when he started uh, performing in these type of musicals that um, I was trying to describe last week, if anybody was listening last week. Um, you know, if you watch these old um, old musical movies that's on the set um, that came out like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, this is the time that he was performing. And um and he became, that's when he be, really became famous at that point. Um, in 1945, he and his partner, Pete Johnson, opened up a nightclub in L.A. And it was called Blue Moon Club. It was during this time that he decided to sign with National Records to record some songs. And it was under the supervision of Herb Ambrinson. His first single was a cover of Saunders King called um, SK Blues. He also performed in a duet with other classy acts such as Winoni Harris and T-Bone Walker, um, among others. He played with um, national records um, for or recorded for national records for about two years. And during those two years, um, he became, he had really, you know, thrived and, be, you know, had big sellers um, because during those two years, he's also had a, a opportunity to play with um, Count Basie, Honey Drippers, um, the Peter Sisters, among others, Peter Sisters, okay, among others. Um, around 1948, Big Joe was beginning to gain some momentum in his career by collaborating with other artists um, besides his long-term um, 
longtime partner, um, Pete Johnson, he was playing with um, the famous, one of the famous jazz artists, Art Tatum and Sonny Price. So you, as you can see, he's kind of transforming the blue style into the jazz. Because if you're playing with like people like Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Art Tatum, now you're going into, you know, the jazz, the jazz style. So he's, you know, you as you can see, he's transforming himself into that type of genre. Um, in 1951, um, he recorded many successful songs that said, such as um, Chains of Love, Shake, Rattle and Roll. Um, and some of his songs were considered risque to the point that some of the um, stations, radio stations wouldn't play his songs because they were considered risque, which I'm not sure how risque um, they were, especially compared to today. I mean, today, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> you can't even compare um, the two uh, because I'm sure if he what they would deem risque, you know, back then, they'll be probably spinning around in their graves right now if they're hearing a lot of the the music that's out today. So, but anyway, I mean, that still didn't stop people from listening because they people had juke um, the jack. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, jukeboxes. So you're in a club or whatever, you still can put that um, nickel in the jukebox and still listen to the music. So it's still, people still um, gain, he still gained popularity from just that. Okay. So um, by 1956, Big Joe decided to kind of, you know, ease his way out into, in the spotlight he recorded his last song, I'm Going to Jump for Joy, which reached the U.S. R&B charts, um, but it took like two years. So it, in 1958, it, it it hit the charts, even though he recorded in 56. Um, and after that, he kind of decided to kind of just like chill out. Um, from um, performing in big um, venues. He decided to just play in small um, jazz clubs, um, supper clubs and things like that. I mean, he didn't want to, you know, perform in, in major uh, venues like he was before. Um, and by the 60s and 70s, he would, um, you know, he did tour in um, Europe. And um, he would rejoin with um, Count Basie at that time. Big Joe was called Big Joe for a reason. I think he was like maybe like 300 pounds. So being a big guy um, caused him health issues after a while. You know, he wasn't probably wasn't taking care of himself like he should. And, you know, performing and touring all this, you know, all these years, I mean, it takes a toll line. So, I mean, not taking care of himself eventually caught up with him. Um, he had um, arthritis and diabetes. Um, and in 1985, he lived 
in, in up until 1985 at the age of 74. That's when he passed away and he died of a stroke in Inglewood, California. And he is buried at the Roosevelt Memorial Park in Gardenia, California. Um, it was in 1987 that he was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that is um, the story of Joseph Vernon Turner Jr., also called Big Joe, who is another blues artist that brought, he brought some class and style to the blues genre. And he brought those genre over into the mainstream. And he, with that, he incorporated blues and jazz. So um, I would suggest people to just kind of look him up and listen to him on YouTube. And you, you would know what I'm talking about, the type of musicals that um, he performed. So that is Big Joe Turner. Um, I want to thank everybody um, for walking down memory lane and listening to the biographies of some of the um, early blues artists for season one. Um, it, it's been a uh, learning experience for myself. After you know researching a lot of these um, artists, it, it really gave me insight of uh, of their talent. And um, how they made their their break, and you know, again, a lot of them they died, you know, broke. They didn't get the just dues that they do that they deserve at the time that they were living. Usually, it's always the after the fact, after they're dead and gone, that they actually get their um, respect. So I wanted to pay homage to them. So I appreciate the twelve weeks, the twelve episodes. Um, I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off um, and then I'll go into season two and then I'm going to start on um, the jazz genre. So again, um, if you have a suggestion of, of who you would like me to um, do a biography on, if you have a favorite artist that you would like to hear about as far as their um, biography, um, hit me up at www.morewineandmusic.com and leave a comment and leave or, or leave a message. And I will definitely, um, you know, do that, uh, make that uh, person uh, an episode. Um, like I said um, last week, I'm going to try to look for um, little known artists. Everybody knows, you know, certain artists. When you think of early art, um, jazz artists, I've already mentioned them. With um, Big Joe, like Count Basie, um, you know, Satchmo, Louis Satchmo, Armstrong, you know, Billy Holiday. We all know about them. We, you know, give respect, respect. But I wanted to kind of um, talk about the lesser known um, artists, early artists of jazz and how jazz was formed um, in the early turn of the uh, 20th century. So, all right. So um, thank you for listening. Um, you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend and um, stay um, focused, stay safe and stay tuned um, for the next um, phase into more wine and music. All right. Have a good night. Bye.
Soundstripe.